as I noted earlier, this book is is not just uh, another critique. Um, in fact, you're searching and calling for something different, something uh, reformative and, and restorative. You wrote, writing this book has forced me to ask, what would a more Christian witness look like? Um, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including Caroline Bell, Cindy Folden-Lord, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. This is worth putting off the podcast interview for 30 more seconds to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Our guest right. for this week's CBF podcast conversation is John Ward. He is the senior political correspondent for Yahoo News. He's also the host of the Long Game podcast. He's authored several books, including Camelot's End and a new book, Testimony, which will be the subject of our conversation today. John, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you, Andy. I appreciate the uh, honorific of several books. I don't know if that applies to two, but we'll take it. Hey, I mean, once you go beyond one, there's several words you can use to describe what you, what you've done. <laughs> so, if you were to piece together all the articles you've written over you know the last several decades, too, that's 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 book volumes. So, uh, so yeah, we'll, we'll we'll say several. Um, all right. So, you, you've uh, you know you've covered two White House and two presidential elections. Um, Take take us a little deeper into uh, the experience of, of being a journalist um, over the last few decades. Sure. Uh, I think it's three presidential elections, including 2020. Um, but journalism, you know, it's funny. I've been I've been uh, in journalism for 20 plus years. And uh, during that time, journalism has gone through, uh, you know, epochal upheaval. Uh, really seismic change. Um, most of that driven, obviously, by the internet and technology. 
and uh, smartphones. So I came into journalism in 2001 in the fall, just after the 9-11 attacks, which is, you know, another huge moment in American history. And I was a, I was a local news reporter for um, several years at the Washington Times, the conservative newspaper here in DC, um, and just sort of cut my teeth on the basics of newspaper journalism, uh, inverted pyramid writing, um, you know, the what, the why, the how, the when, um, all of all of the the basic building blocks of going out, finding the finding out what happened, and and relaying it pretty straightforwardly to the reader. Again, on local issues, very you know mundane and parochial stuff, you know, even inside DC, um, potholes and weather and the like. And um, then I covered a state legislature in Maryland and a, and a Senate campaign. Then I covered the White House for three years. Um, and then I would say for the last 10, 15 years, uh, since around 2010, so I guess that's 13 years, um, it's been a lot of national politics, sometimes Congress, sometimes a lot of campaigns. Um, and, uh, and since I moved from the Times to the Daily Caller, which was Tucker Carlson's website at the time, um, he's now left that entirely. Uh, it's been all digital. So I, I will say this. One of the big differences between newspaper journalism and, and online journalism is that I don't miss the uh, I don't miss the evening deadline of the newspaper journalism model because it's allowed me to be home for dinner and making making dinner for the family uh, a lot a lot more often. And uh, newspaper journalism, I just remember those those days of like the whatever the deadlines were five six seven o'clock. Your evenings were usually um, pretty disrupted. Well, I don't know if it was bait, but I'm not going to take it. I'm talking about Tucker Carlson. We'll, we'll avoid talking about that experience in general, <laughs> but maybe this next question will get to the heart of it. You know, covering politics these days, uh, you know, even as a reader and viewer, it's exhausting. Um, how, yeah. how do you process it all in a healthy way? I mean, do you take a cold shower at the end of the day? What, what What's your best practice? I stay in my lane mostly, um, and I and I focus on what I'm supposed to be working on, and I try to be informed enough about what's going on in the world without feeling an obligation to uh, be an expert on it, and definitely without feeling an obligation to express an opinion on it. And I, and I take that pretty seriously. Um, Twitter obviously is the great tempter to all of us to go online and uh spout off on you know the issues of the day um i try to avoid that because i think it doesn't contribute much good to the conversation so um you know epistemologically i i kind of take an agnostic approach to most things unless i've done the work to really educate myself and i've you know been trained in how to do that through my job through journalism and when you really go through the work of, as anybody in, you know, any form of research and writing understands, once you've gone through the work of really digging into the details of something, understanding the context, the history, the many layers, the competing interests, um, once you've done that, you understand how often there's so much 
that most people just are missing about most things. Um, so I think it, it, I think it builds some caution into jumping to conclusions about things. Um, so that's kind of how I approach um, the exhaustion of the modern news cycle. Um, I just don't think it's incumbent on most of us to um, have to care about everything in the world. I think that's actually counterproductive. Uh, I think it, I think it's a nod towards towards localism as well. I'm obviously not calling for apathy uh, or for sticking our heads in the sand, but there is a limit to how much we can all take on, and I think I think it's just common sense to acknowledge that. I guess maybe the better question would have been um, how how much is your uh, frequent purchase card on bourbon at the end of the week to, to kind of mm. <laughs> drown, drown it all away? Um, tell us about the uh, the long game podcast. Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I uh, so from 2011 when I went to Huffington Post to 2015, so about four or five years. I was, you know, your typical campaign reporter. I loved doing long form storytelling and I did some of that. Um, but I understood that, you know, scoops were the coin of the realm in journalism. Um, and so a lot of my energy was poured into explaining politics to people and trying to get uh information that that was sort of from behind the scenes um you know for example i think it was 2012 um when romney named paul ryan as his vice president um i would like to claim that i was first i think i was second by about i don't know 60 seconds um in reporting that beat by chuck todd i think um but that you know that's the kind of stuff i was I was pursuing. Um, and I would say that on the night that Trump became the nominee in Cleveland in 2016, um, I packed up my computer, left the hall, and decided to start doing a different type of journalism, which was more solutions-oriented, um, less a part of the outrage industrial complex that is a lot of um, you know, media content because I wanted to help uh, Americans understand what was causing our, our problems and what was causing our um, increasing disability to do much about our challenges as a country. And so that is why I started the podcast because it's a great vehicle for that. It's called The Long Game because you know, a lot of these problems and challenges we face are not things that popped up overnight and the solutions also are not gonna happen overnight. And so one of the first things I did in the podcast is just start really asking the questions or the series of questions around institutions and specifically political parties. And I was asking very basic questions like, what is an institution? What is its purpose? Uh, what is a political party? What is its purpose? So um, those were kind of the origins of the podcast. Um, and I think the the DNA of of sort of that approach to journalism remains in the podcast and in my journalism today. 
So you have a new book, Testimony. This book inspects the uh, American evangelical um, group and, and a troubling political path of, of the movement. Uh, you know, writing about evangelicalism has become a very insightful avenue over the last few years. Um, we'll get to the the personal aspect of this book shortly. Um, however, I wonder, you know, how has covering politics given you a unique perspective into evangelicalism? You know, I think that might be a question that I haven't been asked. So kudos. Um, and because I haven't been asked it, I don't know if I've thought too much about it. How has journalism given me insight into evangelicalism? You know, I one thing that comes to mind uh, just is the fact that having grown up in the church, um, I think I was, I think I was pretty bothered by the fact that people didn't want to talk about power or acknowledge the fact that it existed and was being uh, used. Um, and that it was sort of a constant presence in church life and in church culture. People, in my experience, often tended to paper over the use of power with spiritual language. Um, and ultimately, that's actually a big part of why I sort of left the subculture as my dominant mode and went into journalism. I mean, I wanted to write for a living. I knew that, but there was a big part of me that just felt like there's so much of this politics and the use of power, which is just kind of, I'm not saying that the use of power is um, a bad thing necessarily, just that it is a reality of life. Um, you know. The lack of willingness to recognize that and i just thought you know if 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 the world is sort of runs on these mechanisms and these these ways of doing things i'd rather be in a setting where people are at least honest about their goals and objectives and aren't trying to hide things by using spiritualized language um you know that was a very present thought in my in my mind as i moved into journalism and I, and I think that remains sort of maybe part of how I look at organized religion. Um, you know, I have definitely studied the use of power over the past 20 years doing this job. I'm pretty familiar with use it how they manipulate was a more in church culture or whatever would, ra would rather not think about it or would rather kind of sweep that reality under the rug they're maybe not as at least at the lay level i think leaders obviously do with these things but even maybe 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 even at the leader level people are trying to sort of push this into the corner this reality of power and how to responsibly steward it rather than manipulate it or
this isn't uh, just a, a survey um, of a religious movement, but a personal memoir of your experience being raised in it and then leaving it. You wrote, my childhood was dominated by talks of demons and angels speaking in tongues, the return of Jesus and the end of the world. I was the son of a pastor. My father led protest outside abortion clinics. I was ambivalent about church until I turned 20 when I became a radical and was put on the fast track to becoming a pastor. Take us a little deeper into your upbringing and the specific uh, the specific tradition that that you were raised. Yeah, before I do all that, I'll just mention I, I was telling you before we started that I listened to the Brad Onishi interview and um, and how you kind of pegged him about how he got into church through a girl. I will just say my my uh, entry into intense religiosity at age twenty did not have anything to do with. Uh, physical attraction to a to a girl or a woman or a man or anybody um but my 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 background was uh my parents you know basically were huge drivers in this and they um, were a part of the jesus movement my dad was raised catholic my mom presbyterian they bought into the the jesus movement revolution or revival um, as something that um, was new and authentic and uh, in contrast to what they felt was the sort of dead ritualism of the more traditional religions they were raised in. Um, and, and so this, you know, this whole Jesus movement really changed their lives and the lives of their friends. They started a church. I was the first infant dedicated in that church. In 1977, my dad was best friends in high school with one of the leaders of the church, um, a guy named C.J. Mahaney. And our our practice was very charismatic um, or quasi-Pentecostal, um, you know, praise and worship bands with drums and guitars and dancing and speaking in tongues, things like you mentioned. Um, not a ton of theology, pretty basic expositional preaching people basically making it up as they went along without a lot of denominational oversight. Uh, definitely not a lot of reliance on tradition or history. Those things were kind of anathema actually. And then as I uh, got into my college years, we became a Calvinist church, which was also driven by larger forces. There was a, a thing called the new Calvinism at the time. Um, Al Mohler's, you know, theological Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville was a big part of that, um, and uh, and that shaped um, that shaped my college years. So I I have experience in both sort of the non-denominational charismatic, um, sort of probably more Arminian theological tradition, um, very steeped in the um, end times theology. That was po very popular in the seventies, and I also have a lot of experience in the in the more um, uh, reformed Calvinist tradition that's popular amongst many Southern Baptist churches, um, many re uh, Presbyterian churches, um, and uh, and I kind of try try to trace in the book the political path of those two streams um that, you know it's not a perfect arc for both i would say 
the reform circles seem to be coming seem to be becoming a little more political just even over the last year or two but up until the 2020 election um you know i think the charismatic you know new apostolic reformation types were were far more political than the reform types who seem to be sort of you know trying to keep politics at an arm's length for most of the trump presidency but i think that's changing seems to be you talk about in the book being radicalized within um, evangelicalism and headed towards pastoral ministry, but um, but you're a journalist now. So what changed? What what was the wake up moment for you, or or was it a, a culmination of, I guess, many pinpricks over the years, for for lack of better terms? Yeah, it was both. I mean, I never felt completely at home in church culture because I'm um, a bit of a contrarian and i and i just like to ask the question why and those those questions are not always welcome in a church culture that um has limits on how much you can ask questions because it's somewhat of a closed universe epistemologically and um in in some respects you know the answers are the answers and to question them is to doubt and to doubt is to sin um to some degree uh but i also just burnt out i mean I, I was in this calvinist subculture where uh the idea of original sin really dominated our everyday practice and i was going to accountability groups and talking about you know on a weekly basis at least if not more regularly you know talking about um, how often i was looking at pornography um and uh, just in this cycle of self-abasement and uh um trying to work my way back towards God. So that, that was, uh, that was an unhappy experience. I mean, it was just not a, not very, not very uplifting, not very constructive. Ultimately, I just also, I think apart from like the fact that it made me very unhappy, I think I just saw the, um, the fact that it wasn't working. It wasn't helping me become a better Christian. Um, wasn't helping me live a more Christian life. Um, so I think those that was a big factor in, in me moving on. The subtitle of the book is Inside the Movement, uh, or Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. What, what do you mean by that failed a generation? That's another great question. I don't think I've, I, I don't know if I've been asked too many times about that particular word. And it's interesting because we had a conversation it was suggested to me that we use the the term corrupted and i i pushed back on that and and wanted to use failed because to me corrupted implies malice um on the part of many people in the evangelical movement who i don't believe are malicious actors uh, you know this is a complicated debate or conversation um, I'd point to David Simon as, you know, the, the guy who's made the wire and, um, threat against America and many other, you know, TV series as somebody who really has delved deeply into this question of what determines events is it individual agency or is it systems and incentive structures? Obviously it's not an either or. But I think 
you know, over time, as I've studied power, I think incentive structures and systems and history um, shape us and shape our thinking <clears throat> much more than we realize. So in, in many ways, a lot of us are, are just products uh, or all of us are products of our environment in ways that we often probably don't realize or even don't want to acknowledge. So I think it's hard when you look at the evangelical culture, there are obviously figures who stand out as significant influences. And, um, you know, it's appropriate to hold them accountable or praise them if they've done things that are good um, or hold them accountable for, for things that were harmful. But I guess when I look at my parents in particular um, and people like them, um, it's hard for me to be angry um, or to think, I know they were doing their best and they were caught up in, in and they didn't do everything perfectly either but who does um and so uh i think the culture is you know it's hard it's hard to get mad at a culture because it's not personalized but i actually think that that's more healthy because it helps us step back from our emotions and step back from demonization of people who we don't like or who we disagree with and try to think about things in a solutions oriented way and, um rather than looking for a scapegoat. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, a model ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then a model ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we're here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. I want to, I'm going to stay kind of um, around the same thread. This book, it, it does take a, a raw and honest and deep look at evangelicals, um, but it's also maybe for lack of a better term, self-deprecating from your sense of ownership and, and your role in being raised in this movement. Why is this an important tone for the book? Uh, which tone in particular? Both the balance of kind of criticism, but also um, kind of seeing yourself in it. And 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 I mean, not criticism for the sake of just criticizing, if that makes any sense. Sure. Uh, 
sure. Oh yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's just been a, I think it's part of who I am. I always disliked the fact that a lot of church culture was more about what it was against rather than what it was for. Um, you know, I really like this idea that Mako Fujimura talks about of being generative. It's not, I'm sure it's not original to him, but just this idea of being generative and creative and life-giving. Whatever ultimately, or whoever ultimately God is, you know, I think that idea of creation and new life is really central. God, as we believe him to be, is the creator. You know, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote about how one of the ways we imitate God is to be sub-creators. And it's very hard to do that if you're reacting um, or, or only criticizing. And this is also a journey I've been on as a journalist. Um, as I thought about ways that journalism contributed to our uh, gridlock and polarization, you know, starting around that period of 2016, uh, I saw ways that journalism often stood on the sidelines and pointed out problems as part of that, again, that outrage uh, industrial complex. And it's easier to do that. It's, you know, it goes back to that Roosevelt quote. Um, it's not the critic who counts. The point he's making is that it's easier to sit on the sidelines and criticize than it is to get in the game and, and work towards a solution and, um, and have some, some skin of your own in the game. Um, and then when it comes to uh, being self-deprecating, I just think, you know, there's so many things I could say about why I believe this, but it's hard to take criticism seriously from people who haven't, you know, applied that lens to themselves first. Um, I think that's the first step in, in having something to say is like examining yourself uh, for whether you're living up to what you say you believe. Um, and once you've, begun to do that, I think it gives you some credibility to step out and start uh, giving constructive critique outward. You wrote, truth has been my North Star over the last two decades of, of journalism. 20 years ago, I thought that the biggest threat to truth were postmodern relativism and godless liberals. Today, my shock, my own tribe of Christianity has taken a battering ram to truth. You know, we we all have our own unique relationship with truth, but I wonder if you can talk to us about truth and evangelicals' relationship with it. Ooh, that's a <clears throat> that's a big one. Um, man, that is a really really big one. Um, let me start by reading a quote. I'm reading through a book right now called "The Conservative Soul" by Andrew Sullivan. I went on Andrew's podcast recently, and as I read through this book, I realized Andrew was. Um, you know, he writes about a lot of the stuff I'm grappling with in my book. He wrote about, he wrote, he wrote about a lot of this stuff in his book, which was, which came out 17 or 18 years ago. And he, he quotes 
somebody at the very beginning who says the true value of a man is not determined by his possession, supposed or real of truth, but rather by his sincere exertion to get to the truth. It is not possession of the truth, but rather the pursuit of truth by which he extends his powers and in which his ever-growing perfectibility is to be found. Possession makes one passive, indolent, and proud. So I think that contrast between possession and pursuit is really important. Um, and unfortunately, I think too often, you know, the fundamentalist psyche, as Andrew calls it in his book, um, considers itself to have possession of truth, uh, capital T or, or however you want to say it, um, rather than conceiving of itself as in pursuit of truth. Um, I, I think it's self-evident why those two things are so different. But the latter really puts one in a position of, of modesty and humility about the extent or the limits uh, that we all face in understanding reality. Um, and when I, when I say that, you know, the tribe that raised me has become one of the big threats to truth. Um, it's this, it's this, uh, I'm referring to what I saw over the last few years. Um, I, I don't mean to suggest that, you know, conservative evangelicals are the only ones who are, um, who are, who are part of this problem. But, you know, I did grow up in this world and I and I was very disturbed by what I saw firsthand as I wrote and researched and reported on the 2020 election. Um, in particular, there were just concrete facts that I was, you know, as part of my job, which I poured a lot of time and energy into, I, I just saw you know, these concrete facts being disregarded and uh, contradicted by a political movement that evangelicals were a part of. And it wasn't as if these, these facts were sort of minor things uh, which, which held no import for the common good or the national life. These are integral to preserving our democracy. Um, so, you know, I think, um, I think that's the main reason I say that. Um, and I, and I, you know, I think there are variations of how much this is true of different parts of evangelicalism. I do think the new apostolic reformation, um, which is truly like a fundamentalist movement, um, you know, there are signs there, at least among the way the leaders continue to sort of broadcast these visions and prophecies of a total departure from a reality-based world into an alternative reality. Um, but there was, there was certainly, uh, there was certainly like, I, I don't know how, I don't know if it was temporary in 2020 and, and parts of 2021. Um, I, do, I do think it was heightened, the sense of a departure into a, an alternative reality. And I, and I, I don't think it was 
necessarily representative of all evangelicals, but it was a crazy year. Let's let's go a little deeper there. You've covered nearly f- five decades of uh, American evangelical politics, whether you covered it by journalism or living it out. <laughs> you know, from the mm-hmm. from the raising of of Ronald Reagan, the war on drugs, the AIDS epidemic, and the vilifying of gay people, the the abortion uh, wars, the the nomination of George W. Bush and Mitt Romney and Trump to the COVID nineteen response to um, to new propagation of, of racism. You know, mm-hmm. from the outside looking in. It's sometimes it's difficult for people to understand. So as as you look at each of these individual topics, there's something going on behind all of it that cues us into an end game, if you will. What do you think the end game is for evangelicals? Hmm. Um, the end game of political engagement. What, what do you mean by that? I don't know. I'll just let you take it where you want to. <laughs> maybe political engagement. Um, maybe na- um, nationalism as a whole. I don't. I know there's so many like subtopics uh, under all that. Yeah, I mean it's a very broad question, and I think the end game for Ralph Reed is very different from the end game for a Southern Baptist pastor in um, Alabama, and the end game for, you know, uh, a church member in Arizona, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's just so many different ways I could answer that question. And and then it's, are we talking about ultimate end game or political end game? So I guess the question is how to precisify that question. And um, the clearest way I can do that is to talk about the end game of political engagement. That's kind of one of the major focuses of the book um now i'll go i'll I'll answer in a roundabout way i i think that the problem of deciding what that end game should be is that a lot of evangelical culture is very bad at discipling church members into public character uh, and I, I distinguish public character from private character. And what I mean by that is that I think going back to what I said about culture and systems versus individuals, um, I think culture, evangelical culture is often pretty good and focused on teaching people how to be good husbands and wives and sons and daughters uncles, employees, bosses, uh, and I would call this private character. But when it comes to applying the faith to a common good approach to public life, to politics, to community involvement and community action, to the collective welfare, uh, I would call that public character. And I think there has been very little focus on how to do that faithfully in evangelical culture. And so when it comes to what the ultimate end game is of the evangelical political engagement, um, I think there's a real poverty there of strength and life. And, uh, and, and I think it shows. So I think the political engagement has been more about power than about service and more about domination than um, 
working for the good of our neighbors. You know, as much as I don't want to, we have to talk about Donald Trump because his election um, into the presidency and evangelicals continue relationship with him is, is a microcosm of this movement's decades long trajectory. You wrote many Christians who had rationalized their way into voting for Trump in 2016 and long before 2020 came to resent the um, the criticism and attacks on him. Many people took them personal. This was part of why they wanted to vote for him again. Take us a little deeper into what Donald Trump represents uh, within the evangelical movement. When you talk about um, that dynamic of, of people taking attacks on him personally, uh, what I think he represents in that aspect was a protector figure um i think most of your listeners will probably know pretty well that there's long been a, a huge part of the evangelical conservative psyche that sees itself as under attack um persecuted and you know at risk of being uh, cast out or eliminated um, and so Trump played to that very well. And I think what he did actively to increase this dynamic of people seeing him as a protector was, I think he went out of his way to provoke his critics and his opponents into outrage and overreaction. Um, the press was certainly part of this. Jonathan Carl, his first book on Trump, did a good job of talking about this. He's a White House correspondent for ABC News and a friend of mine. Um, Trump wanted to run against the press. You know, we, that was clear. And when he provoked these overreactions and this outrage, some of it often, you know, justified, but often... Um, you know, spilled over into excess. Uh, you know, that that really helped him cement the support of not just evangelicals, but many of his supporters um, who, who saw him as their champion, who may not have liked him at first, but became um, exasperated and outraged and, and angry by the degree to which they saw attacks on him as unfair. Um, and again, I think he was quite skilled at provoking excess. And that's uh, why it's so important to try to be measured in how we talk about not just him, but politics. And um, because, because it plays into, you know, the hands of people like him. Uh, um. I think more broadly, what does Trump represent to evangelicals? Uh, I don't, again, I need to distinguish between like folks who are more charismatic and more non-denominational um, who might buy into these ideas that he's a King Cyrus figure. There was some spillover outside of that world, I think in a vague sense of people seeing him as an imperfect vessel for you know achieving their policy goals. Um, which often related 
to the Supreme Court, um, deregulation, healthy economy, those sorts of things. So, I mean, that's how I would answer that, I guess. I don't know. Did you have something else in mind? I'm curious. No, it's just, um, it's, it's, it's easy to, again, from the outside looking in, and of course I was raised in, in this movement as well. Um, it, it's hard for people to understand um, the dynamics and the more we can kind of step mm. into it and and look at it and see that connection. I think people can not relate to it, but understand to a certain degree um, versus just standing from yeah. the outside looking with, with bewilderment. Um, so I'll say one other thing then. I mean, about if towards that end, I, I think I don't want to, I don't want to um, say that there are no reasons for concern among conservatives regarding animosity towards them in the culture or um, attempts to stifle religious freedom. Um, there are elements in our politics that are antagonistic towards religious freedom. Um, and that's a whole separate topic. I understand people might have different definitions of what that is or what it should look like. But it's it's a contested space, no doubt about it. Um, and there are real threats to, I would say, rights of conscience. I don't personally believe in any sort of, um, you know, theocratic approach to to government or, or um, Christian nationalism or any type of religious nationalism. I, I'm a pretty firm believer in a pluralistic society with very robust rights of conscience. Um, so, you know, there's a distinguished, there's a distinction between somebody who's worried that, um, the government isn't going to be comprised of all Christians. And there's a difference between them and somebody who's worried about rights of conscience. But I do think there's a reason, there are reasons for concern among those who want to have a pluralistic society with robust rights of conscience. My own perspective on that as a Christian is that even if the worst case scenario that some of you know the most egregious crisis entrepreneurs and conflict merchants are selling out there, even if those worst case scenarios are true or real or or a real concern, which I don't think they are. Um, I think the 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 response of faith is to do your best to advocate for your interests in a. Um, democratic society, certainly not to roll over or to sort of let those who disagree with you have their way. That's not what I'm saying. But I do think, you know, the, the response of faith is to, to advocate, to work, to organize um, for your interests in, in, a, in a common good way. Um, and then to rely on your faith to help you accept when things don't go your way, not to use your faith as a battering ram to manipulate power to get your way, which I think is what has happened too often. As I noted earlier, this book is is not just uh, another critique. Um, in fact, you're searching and calling for something different, something uh, reformative and, and restorative. You wrote, writing this book has forced me to ask, what would a more Christian witness look like? Um, I wonder if you'll take us a little deeper here. Well, you know, I kind of got at it at the end of that last answer. Um, 
and I've and I've already mentioned numerous times having a common good uh, love of neighbor as a as sort of a foundational political principle, rather than um, you know an antagonistic. I, I often talk about it as a stakeholder rather than antagonist. Um, one of the things I try to trace in the book is how my upbringing and the upbringing of many other, you know, evangelicals like me uh, was in this church culture that held itself away from um, the world or the secular culture or the non-Christian world or just the world outside of the church building or the church community. Um, that created a sense of sort of distance, even isolation. That created um, a, a, a fear-based approach to politics because we were not as informed or discerning as we should have been. We were more easily manipulated by those crisis merchants. Um, a more Christian, what was the phrase? I want to make sure I'm answering the right question here. <laughs> Yeah, you said, what would a more Christian witness uh, yeah. look like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think I've already talked a lot about it. It's it's um, not seeking to dominate, uh, but rather to serve. Um, to in order to do that, uh, fear cannot be the driving um, motivator. Um, Faith-driven courage, I think, has to be. Um, I think liminality, you know, is is key to all this. Um, and I say that because I'm thinking of this image of Christ on the cross. We're talking on Good Friday. Um, you know, one of the ways I, I envision the embodiment of, of walking the way of the cross is to um, to be liminal in, in the way we live our lives, to be uh, in some ways pulled, have our arms, you know, towards um, people on different sides of issues and to try to be peacemakers, um, to bring understanding and nuance and complexity and, and uh, mutual understanding and peace and healing to conflict. Um, whether that's in relationship or in public policy or in politics or in community activism. Um, and that is like a, an active embodiment of, um, in a way, in maybe a poetic way of, of Christ's um, being, being pulled apart on, on the cross um, and his arms open like that. That's sort of an image I think I got from Mako. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, I think that's, I mean, I could go on, but uh, I think, you know, I just think increasingly it seems hard. We're going we're gonna to all do what we can on the national level or even the state level. And that's important. But going back to, I think the issue of examining yourself, how much are we doing things where we have the most impact? You know, it's in our families, it's in our neighborhoods, it's in our communities. These things are maybe harder than anything. I mean, our family, our families are, um, you know, kind of a, a non-negotiable. We have to deal with our family. We live with them every day. But when it comes to that next level, 
but we can neglect our families obviously too you know by by seeking brighter lights but it's that neighborhood community level that's that's like it's that, that in between space that's often neglected because we're busy with our families we're busy with our jobs if we work in national or state level stuff we're busy with that and um there's so much that we could do at our community level but there's not much reward for it uh, at least in the short term so i think it's it's important and often neglected just leave you with this question um towards the end of the book you write about finding the real jesus that beckons us into a life a vulnerability that threatens the false gods of comfort and ease. Um, I know this can, I don't, I don't want this to sound like um, lead you into a, like a self-righteous answer as if you found, you know, all this and you've accomplished this, but, but how did you discover that Jesus in your life and how do you guard yourself against reshaping that Jesus to fit into a nuanced version of comfort and ease? A nuanced version of comfort and ease. Can you put a little more meat on those bones? <laughs> hey, who's who's the journalist in this interview? <laughs> let me let me ask you vague questions. Yeah, you know, I guess you you have obviously processed a worldview and moved out of that worldview, and have inherited a, a new worldview in which you write about in the book that you know recognizing that we can turn Jesus into this false God of comfort and ease. So mm -hmm. I guess, you know, what kind of guards have you created in your life to check that from, you know, happening again, you know, again. in whatever new yeah. form of worldview you have? Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I, well, some of the quotes you're reading about what I'm striving towards now, um, uh, yeah, I'm cautious about a lot of that because um, I am on a quest and a journey and the ways in which I'm trying to live out my faith now are harder than the ways I was taught growing up, which were more about like, you know, taking a stand in ways that were often performative and didn't, weren't really systematic to the way you lived your life. Um, and as a result, I feel like, um, not doing a very good job most of the time or I'm failing. Um, so I'm a little cautious about talking to beating my chest too much about, you know, how great a job I'm doing. But um, when it comes to, to, to like protecting against the errors I made before, I think one of the key ways I try to do that is just by epistemic modesty. It's kind of a lame academic sounding term, but it's just so important to me. Um, and I also I also have argued or to myself, I, I guess I've written about it on Substack, that epistemic modesty is a key part of intellectualism. You know, I've had a debate with, I went on Hugh Hewitt's podcast and he was arguing against the idea that evangelicalism is anti-intellectual. And, you know, he said, I know this person and that person uh, who have read lots of books and written books and are well-educated. And uh, as I thought about that, I just thought, well, 
And it goes back to that quote I read about possession versus pursuit. Intellectualism to me shouldn't be a bad word and it should be accessible to all people. It shouldn't be accessible only to people who are, you know, university educated or have resources for all kinds of private study or whatever. Um, to, you know, the statement that I could be wrong um, is really important to this. Um, and, uh, and I don't know is also a really important statement because it puts us in a position of a student and a learner rather than um, somebody who possesses the answers. Um, and I think I, I think there's a statement in the book that, you know, the, the errors of the church I grew up in were certainty and a bit of hubris about the degrees to which they, they had the answers. And I still, I still sort of have those instincts in me. Maybe this is what you were getting at. Often when we, you know, go on these lifelong journeys where we shift from one place to another when we get to a new plateau or a new vista we can look out and think that maybe we're at the top of the mountain um or that we've arrived um and i think i'm just trying to avoid applying that same sense of certainty or self-righteousness uh to to the ways i think now and I think one of the keys is just recognizing is that it's instinctive um, in me, at least. And so it's not something I'm ac actually going to notice or be aware of necessarily all the time. So it does require, again, that um, that sense of self-scrutiny. And uh, there's another word I'm thinking of that I can't bring to mind right now, but just a vigilance about that. Our guest is John Ward. The book is Testimony Inside the Evangelical Movement that Failed a Generation. You can stay connected with John by visiting johnwardwrites.org. John, uh, what a pleasure to, to sit down and talk with you. Thank you for, for challenging us to um, see through our own story that we have an opportunity to follow the invitation of Jesus into a life of vulnerability that threatens the false god of comfort and ease. Yeah, easier said than done, right? Um, thank you for saying that, though. It's, uh, it's always a challenge to hear those words. Hey, you're not going to want to fast forward because you want to hear about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity programs, scholarships, and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.